when you become friends with so many people in your platoon, and they get hit, and they call your name, you, you don't really think about anything except going to their help. As a young man, Peter Brewstus thought about a career in medicine. He saw it as a noble calling. So when Uncle Sam came calling during World War II, Peter thought it would be a proper fit to serve as an Army field medic. He would hear the frantic call, medic, medic, countless times before, during, and after the Battle of the Bulge. He lived the horrors of war on the battlefield, receiving a bronze star for his courage under fire. He was also witness to the atrocities of Hitler's final solution. For Peter Brustus was among the American GIs who were part of the liberation of the Nazi concentration camp at Dachau. He is a proud, humble man who, when asked over the years about his wartime experience, would offer this summary. I saw man's inhumanity to man. Honor Flight Chicago is proud to present the Honor Thank Inspire story of Peter Brustus. You're a, you're a student, and you're at Wright College in Chicago, mm -hmm. and you want to be a, a doc. Mm -hmm. Yes. Why did you want to be a doc? I just thought it was a good profession to join, help people. I was kind of always, med always interested in medicine, mm -hmm. but it didn't turn out that way. Well, along comes the Army. They came calling, and it was time for you to go. But you had an opportunity to continue your education after the service called for you. Yes. How did that work out? I went back to, uh, well, the money was a scarce item scarce in my house. So I chose to go to Ro Roosevelt University and Michigan Avenue because was, I could then work part-time, which I did at at the bee bindery during spring break, Christmas break, I, whatever to make some money, which I did. And then I, I met Bertha at high school when I took her to her prom in 1941. And we didn't do anything, just I was interested, but I didn't have a pot to piss in, if you pardon me. <laughs> or windows will throw it out of it. Right. So she went off to college. I went off and finished my four years. She finished hers. And eventually we got together and eventually got married in 1951. Did, did you figure back then when you first met her that you'd be going off to war? Was that a, a well, foregone it, conclusion? It, it was not that kind of a relationship at that time. Okay. I mean, she was a beautiful girl, a very ambitious, energetic, lively, full of fun. She was a junior and I was a senior. So I, after I left, I told her kiddingly that I would take her to a prom the following year. Well, it turned out I happened to go to high school during class day or something, and she was there, 
and I realized that her mother didn't want her to go with any but anyone but a Greek. She was adamant about that. So Bertha said, you promised to take me to my prom. Is that why you're here? I said, yeah, I guess so, you know. <laughs> Anyhow, time went by and we got, got together and you got married and had two children. Mm -hmm. So you want to be a medic and you're going to school. Are you called by the Army? Are you then drafted or do you enlist? No, they, they, they drafted me then. All right, you got drafted. <clears throat> and then my friend was a stamp. Stamp the ASTP. So you think you're going to go to a place where they're going to give you an opportunity to continue your education. Right, like you said, you know, sometimes the AMA will give you a test. If you pass the test that fall, you wind up going to a medical school. Well, they disbanded the program. That took care of that. Because they needed boots on the ground. Yeah, we're, we weren't doing too well in Europe. So you're called over, you, you're eventually assigned to a unit and you're off to Europe. Right. And you're on the Queen Elizabeth? Queen Elizabeth. How many men on the Queen Elizabeth going I think it was Division 22,000. Do you know what's going to be in store for you when you get there? Do you have any idea? Well, I know we're going to war. But going over to Europe, did you know you were going to be a medic in the field? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And that was your choice. You wanted to do that yeah. because you like medicine. Right. You thought it might help your career yeah. eventually. Yeah, that was, just made sense. So then when, when do you finally see action on the ground? You've, you're a field medic, so you're yeah. going to be in the front lines and you're going to see all kinds of stuff. I didn't know that when I signed up. When I said, when I, said I want to be a medic, I didn't know they were, <laughs> I found out. You know, so what lessons did you learn as a field medic? <laughs> when you become friends with so many people in your platoon, and they get hit and they call your name, you, you don't really think about anything except going to their help. I mean, it's, I mean, when you hear, you hear somebody say, hey, Greek, I'm hit. You can't just ignore it. You don't stop and think. You just go out there to help them. And that's what happened to me. Um, Is that what they said? Greek, yeah, I'm right. hit? Greek, I'm, I'm hit? hit? I'm hit. Yeah. One guy did. When I got out there, you know, you don't, you're not thinking. You're, you're, you're in a, a chaotic situation. You're getting, you're pinned down. You, and we were in the woods, but these these three guys were, were like scouts up front. So I, they said, Greek, I'm hit. I ran out there, and I could hear the sniper taking pot shots. I mean, I could hear bullets coming by me. But you don't, at that time, you don't, you're not aware of any of that. So I dragged one guy back. I went back, got a second guy, dragged him back. 
and they tell me I dragged the third guy back. I don't remember that. So three times yeah. you're in a field of fire, and you're pulling these guys out of harm's into, way. Into the woods. Well, the sniper is taking aim. But you don't, you don't hear it. You don't, you're doing what you're supposed to do. The book says the medic waits for the main body to get to the place where they're lying hurt. In other words, they don't want the medic to expose himself. He's supposed to wait until the body, the main body, the platoon covers. Well, sometimes you can't, can't rely on that. Sometime after that, we were uh, pulled back to change our clothes and take a, a helmet full of water and take a bath, which is how you did it. And we were in a farmhouse. And in the farmhouse, they had a potbelly stove. And it was cold outside, snow, wicked. And I'm on top of that stove, and it's red hot. You know, you know the uh, wood burning fire. The back of my cold as hell, but the front was red hot. Well, somehow I either got pneumonia or I got pleurisy. I don't know which. I never did find out which of the two I had. But I know that every time I took a breath like that, I had a tremendous pain in my side. So I think it was, it was pleurisy, which is not the best thing to have. Well, I wound up going to an evacuation hospital, and they kept me in there for, I think, two weeks. And then they sent me back to join my group again. When you rescued the three men, and pulled them out of harm's way. Where was that? Well, it was in Germany, but I don't know exactly where. Was That wasn't Battle of the Bulge, was it? No. Okay, was it before Bulge? Yeah. Okay. But as a medic, you've got a, a, a oh. band on your arm, yeah. a Red Cross, and on your helmet too, I presume? Yeah. So you're a target. You're a target. Uh, yeah. We, we, we did lose several medics because of that. When you pulled the three back, uh, ultimately you're, you got a bronze star for that. Well, when I got back from the hospital, the general and some colonel came and saw me and they, they pinned the medal on me. I had no idea what was going on, none whatsoever. It was just an instinctive thing, right? I think so. Yeah. I mean, do you, do you have any idea how many times when you were in the field of battle you heard the call, medic, medic? Well, it happens often because all kinds of injuries. To give an example. We had a replacement join our, our division and he was under my supervision. He was 18-year-old. 18 year old, and we were going across a field, and all of a sudden, in the open field, and three Tiger tanks with 88 cannons on, on top came over the surface over a mound and started to fire at us. So they called for a disorderly retreat, get back in the woods. 
But I wore a, a field jacket that ties around the middle, and I had my sea cans, a few cans, three maybe, in my jacket. <laughs> and, and as I was running across, the cans fell out, and I stopped and went back and picked them up. Now, that is stupid. I mean, that is... Another instinctive reaction. That is stupid. <laughs> and maybe that saved my life. I don't, I don't know. Well, you are you getting shot at when you go back to get the sea cans? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I saw the tanks. We get this order to retreat, get you back in the woods. And cans came out. I literally stopped went back and picked up the cans, put them back in my jacket, and ran into the woods. Must have been pretty valuable stuff. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a hungry person either, you know. <laughs> so that's you gotta eat, survival. <laughs> well, that, oh. doesn't that say that so much of what you do is done instinctively? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So as I get back into the woods, this 18-year-old replacement got a shrapnel in his, in his ankle. Now we call that a million dollar wound because mm -hmm. you're going back to the States. Mm -hmm. you're not, they're not gonna keep you here. So he's crying, 18 year old. He says, those bastards, I wanna get them, I wanna kill them, you know. I just, son, I didn't know who he was. He just joined us the day before. And I said, you're going home, you got a million dollar wound. So he made it home. One day we were in the Maginot Line at the French supposedly protection. And uh, a kid about 6'3", tall, gangly kid, joins the replacement. Now I knew how to dig a hole pretty good. It was, you're scared enough, you dig it, no matter how hard the ground is, you manage to do something with it. Well, this guy got down three feet so fast that I jumped in the hole with him. He was more scared than I was. But somehow we were going advancing this way, and he went that way. He got captured by the Germans. They tied him to a tree, and as our army was advancing the right flank, they cut the rope and told it to follow the Germans. Well, he turned around and went back to join the Americans. Who, I mean, crazy things that happened. Who cut the rope? Who, who was he it? He was tied to the tree as a captain. Yeah. And when, the, when we were advancing, the Germans cut the rope, told him to follow them. So he didn't follow the Germans. He, he, he went back and joined up the Americans who were coming down that, that right flank. That was a gutsy move, and also on oh, the part yeah. of the Germans, kind yeah. of a stupid move. Absolutely. Yeah. He joined us again. He told me the story. I, I couldn't believe it. He happened to be a Greek boy, too. Tied to a tree.
when the Battle of the Bulge begins, it's incredibly cold and miserable. Oh, yeah. And I imagine a lot of your time was spent dealing with frostbite and trench foot and things like that. Right? Uh, interesting story. We had some boots that we wore, and we had the, uh, sleeping bags. And part of your problem was when you, when you went into your sleeping bag, you take your boots off. Well, one day, I didn't take my boots off. When the order came to wake up in the morning, we were going to start to walk to march again. I couldn't get out of the foxhole. My boots and my stocking were ice together up against my skin. And I was agony. I never had so much pain. So a couple of GIs picked me up out of the hole and carried me over to a tree. And I hugged the tree and I started to do this. Moving your legs. And every, every time I picked up my foot, it hurt. But I knew that, not as a medic, but as a human being, that if you get frostbite, it becomes gangrenous, then amputation follows, and I had to avoid that. So I sat there as long as I could just to get the circulation back. Fortunately, it worked. But then we... Then we got orders to move on with some assistance from some of my fellow GIs. I, I managed to stay with them. I think it, I was lucky because we did get a, a lot of feet got wet, a lot of frostbite. You, know, you don't know how it turned out for some of the guys, but it's part of war. I imagine there was a lot of pressure on you too because you're the medic, you know, and we got to have you. We can't afford to lose you. Yeah, well, Did you feel that? Not really, not really. Hmm. I mean, basically, we, we, we could stop bleeding. We had the shots that we give people. Morphine? Yeah. I imagine you saw people die in front of you, too, oh, didn't yeah. you? Oh, yeah. You know, most of the people that died were mortally wounded, it just... They wouldn't have been saved no matter what. And the evacu evacuation hospital is close. They're not a million miles away. They're maybe a mile away. But there are things that happen that are, should not be discussed. With all the things that you saw, could you handle them on the field of battle? Did you feel after a period of time, after seeing, as you put it, man's inhumanity to man, didn't that weigh heavily on you? And how did you handle that? That's an interesting question. Um, going back to what I said earlier, I never worried about getting killed in Europe. I always felt I was going to be okay. That, that's a good feeling to have, by the way. But I knew that if I get Pacific, I was never coming back. 
I just did what I thought I had to do, kept my nose clean, trying not to bother anybody. And it turned out okay. Mm -hmm. I mean, I saw things that I didn't want to see, but it was there. And you always had to worry about counterattacks. You had to worry about snipers. They made me a staff sergeant when the war was over, hoping I'd stay in the service. That didn't work. <laughs> Did they try to encourage you beyond the lift in rank? Did they say, Peter, we need you? Yeah. Yeah, that didn't work, did it? Didn't work. Yeah. Did you have a sense when the Battle of the Bulge was going on, it, it starts before Christmas, a week or so before Christmas, yeah. then it continued into January, god-awful weather and everything. Did Was there a sense of relief when that finally came to an end? Was it fairly clear to you that... No, because we still were... Still, war was still going on. Mm -hmm. They just moved us from there to another area that was hotter, and that just continued until May 5th or 15th, right. whatever it was, May uh, 6th. But, but leading up to that, your unit is sent to the Munich area, and you have occasion to arrive at something that I suspect you didn't feel you were ever going to see and hoped you wouldn't see. You run into Dachau, the concentration camp. Yeah. Dachau was really a, by the time we got there, it was pretty well under control. They had moved out most of the, the uh, fugitives, the hospitals. What did you see when you got there? They were clawing at the, at the wire, at the, at the fence. They were, please, you know. I mean, skin and bone, like skeletons. When you're, when you're seeing that, clawing at the oh. fencing and there's... They, they were battle fatigue. They were out of their minds. They were all kinds of things. Men and women together? As I recall, yes. Yeah. Young and older, were they mostly older? Yeah. They were. But, you know, you couldn't tell how old they were because they looked so so emaciated. They were emaciated, yeah. That's the right word for it, too. Yes, yes. Were you uh, able to communicate with them at all? Did you? Did, no. Did anyone have no. any dealings with them? No, first of all, they, they were Jewish or Polish. And if you don't speak the language, you... Not communicating. Okay, so yeah. what what are you saying to each other? What's Peter Brewster saying to his fellow soldiers when you're looking well, at all these emaciated human beings? You try beings? to give them, if you had some candy or a fruit bar or something, give it to them, you know. But that's, that's not communicating. No. But did you, did you realize when you're looking at them what they had gone through, what that camp no. was about? Well, you know, unless you see that, 
I can't believe that, that people do that, burn them in the ovens and have them sleeping on, on boards, four or five in it. No. What kind of emotion does that prompt? Did, were you, you were shocked, I suppose? Oh, you were in shock. Were you angry? And you, and you can't do too much about it either. There's not much you can do. Did you realize then the consequence of, uh, of how many lives lost there? Did, did, did any of you have a conception uh, how evil this had been? Well, you know, in regard to that, when I was in the bindery business, I had many Japanese Americans working for me. These Japanese Americans were the ones that were removed from the West Coast and sent to Santa Fe Racetrack and horse stalls, and they lived there. And I didn't know this until 20 years after they were with me. These people worked for me. They left the, the, the stalls and the farms and came to the Midwest to get a job. When I found out what, what happened, I couldn't believe our government did that. These are American-born people, not Japanese. American-born Japanese. Another incidence of man's inhumanity to Absolutely. man. Absolutely. And while they were displaced and put in places and their lives were turned upside down. Yeah, but here's the story. They, they take your stove and sell it for $5. Mm -hmm. You know, furniture. Give it away. Right. They were told, you got 24 hours, 48 hours to get out. Our country, America, they did this. Now, I really didn't know about it until, until I heard it from the participants went through it. What happened at Dachau and the other concentration camps though, well, went, was at a much different level where they're yeah, putting absolutely. people into ovens. Absolutely. Did, did you see the ovens there? Yes. You yeah. did. And when you're they, walking by them and looking at that and they, realizing that human beings were put in there and their lives were ended that way? Terrible. Mounds and mounds of buried bodies. Of, I, I, I'm not quite sure how you can you got those images in your mind. Do they okay. ever leave you? Are they with you all I the time? I have You don't. I have. You, you don't. I, I was there. I saw it. I felt it. Uh, I can't explain it. It's... But over time, were you ever haunted by those images? No. no. Did you put it out? No. You put it out? No. I, I, thank God I, I don't have that problem. Some people do. I don't have that. Well, then you're a fortunate guy. Yes, I, I believe that. May comes around 1945, and the war ends in Europe. And you think at that point, that you're going to be able to go home, or are you fearing 
that you're going to be sent to the other theater. Oh, I know I'm going to, I was told we're going home for a 30 day furlough, and then you're going to go fight the Japanese. But fortunately, the war ended, and three, I had three more days to go on my furlough. But I never, I never would have survived that. I know that. Why do you think that? I mean, I feel that if I ever got a ship going to Japan, I would not come back. You just felt that? I just felt that. In that period when you're waiting to see whether or not you're going to have to go to the Pacific Theater, uh, did you ever think, you know, I, I did my thing here, folks. I did the best I could at great risk to myself and everyone I was trying to help. So give me a break. I don't really want to go. No. You didn't feel that? No. No. Because we went to Fort Benning to reorganize the division. Reorganize meant what? Bringing us all together again. Because we were so-called fighting unit, you know. Mm -hmm. The generals like to use that expression. Yeah. We're, we're fighting unit. That's bullshit, by the way. <laughs> I mean, you know, something happened to me at one time that I think it may, may be interesting. We were marching into a town, and by that I mean my, my, my company, and all of a sudden, some Tiger tanks started shelling the town. The rest of our division behind us, outside the town, thinking the Germans are attacking the town, they fired into the town. So my group is stuck between the Germans firing cannons and the Americans firing tracer bullets, machine guns. We're in a barn, and the barn got straw, and the tracers hit the straw, set it on fire. So we're, I and three, four other guys are stamping out the fires. I don't know what to do. I'm, I, have, I have my group, eight people. Typically in Europe, the houses and the barns are attached. So we went inside the house, which was deserted by then, and I got under a large oak round table and put the aid kit over my heart. I didn't know what was going on outside. It was getting shelled, uh, scared. And when I'm under that table, a GI whom I didn't know was going through, what do they call DTs or something, mm -hmm. and he's kicking like crazy. He's kicking me. He doesn't know what's going on. He's delirious. So eventually, the, the machine gun fire stopped. The Tiger tanks withdrew, and now I had three people who were wounded, and I said, we got to get out of here. So instead of going down the road that brought, brought us in, we went across a field, which is closer and more direct. Now, that would take, we're taking a chance, because that could have been a minefield. Yeah. You don't know that. You don't know until you step on one, you know. So we had... Four guys carrying two people that were wounded, which we had bandaged up as much as we could. And as we were marching out, we get to the intersection, 
and there's a colonel up there. He said, what's going on, soldier? I said, beats the hell out of me, sir. I said, I don't know. I was shelled from Tiger tanks and, and you're firing us machine guns. So we were trying to get out of here. But crazy things happen, sure. People get killed by friendly fire, yeah. Yeah. Happens all the time. Well, I know you said that you you were always confident you'd you'd make it out. Oh yeah. But that's a that's a wonderful feeling by the way. Imagine it is. <laughs> but there had to be moments of yeah, great, there great were, fear there were. when you didn't when you may have doubted yourself. I mean it's it's even after the war was over in Germany you would see some farmers here and there, and they had their problems. We had our problems, and yet they were—they weren't antagonistic. They, they weren't—they were human beings, and probably glad that it was over. Oh, yeah, I'm sure they were. Did you have any communication with with German citizens at the end? Mm-hmm. And what did, did they say anything to you? I know that maybe language barrier, but yeah, did they, it was. they say anything? Uh, for the most part, they were relieved that the war was over. They weren't all for Hitler. They were, you know, hospitable, a bottle of wine or a piece of bread. I didn't feel any, 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 any animosity towards them. They were there because they were, they were born there. Mm-hmm. Hitler was the boss. What was it like then when you heard that the bomb had been dropped and the war was over? Well, I had been at home, I'd been in Georgia when they dropped the bomb. And quite honestly, to this day, I'm glad that, I'm glad that Truman dropped it. Thousands of people would have died because attacking the mainland of Japan would have been catastrophic. When you look back on your experience and your generation and what you did, do you have a real sense of pride? I mean, you're often referred to oh, as yes, the greatest yeah. generation. You s- I, I, the fact that I was 6'1 and weighed 132 pounds, I thought I would be a 4F. Mm-hmm. I thought he wouldn't take me, really. Not that I was disabled, but I just wasn't soldier material. And I, I felt that way. Uh, I've been sheltered life for 20 years, you know, just schoolboy, schoolboy, college boy. And uh, I was more than delighted. I was just tickled. Tickled pigs would be going. Absolutely. Out of the sense of service? Right. Right. Did, but did you understand then what, what the world was up against? And the, you, you mentioned that things were not going well in Europe when, when, you, when you went over no. there. Was there the sense that we weren't going to pull this thing out? We, were going, we might even lose this. You know, when you're a 20-year-old, you're not, you don't think about those things too much. Yeah, yeah. Truthfully. Yeah. I mean, you just take one day at a time. Yeah, but you think about them now, don't oh, you? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But at that time... No, you. Everything was fun and games. You, you, you're going to become an air cadet. You're going to get the wings on your shoulders. I was delighted, mm-hmm. elated, happy as a 
as you know. As a clam. A great life. Can't complain, really. Yeah. Great kids. I've lived a long life, longer than I expected. I lost my brothers, my mother, my girl, my wife, my father. But a great life. Let me bring you back to one trip that you made in 2011 on Honor Flight. And you went to the memorial in Washington. That was a great trip. Was that a, um, a cleansing experience for you? Well, I thought it was long overdue, to tell you the truth. Yes. And I think that uh, the World War II soldiers were not treated correctly. Not that it bothered me personally, but as I reflect, trying to make up for it now with, with, with this, it's a step in the right direction. It's just that not everybody's taking advantage of it for a variety of reasons, I guess. But I'm telling you, it was very heartwarming, late, late in coming, but very appreciated, both here and in Washington, D.C. Yeah, you were able to connect with other veterans there, weren't you? Right. Yeah, share experiences. And when you came home that night to Midway Airport after the day in D.C., and everybody's there yeah. cheering and everything, yeah. Was your family there? Yes, oh yes. That's a warm feeling, isn't it? Very. I mean, I always liked the Andrews sisters. They, they put on those impersonators. Put on a great show, great show. And then we got all kinds of stuff in the mail and stuff like that. Nyla was very helpful. She was very, mm -hmm. extremely helpful. Nyla Hartzell was your Honor Flight Chicago guardian. She's become a good friend since then. Yeah, those, those trips can, can create some great friendships, can't they? That's yeah. wonderful. Well, Peter, I've enjoyed talking to you. And I hope I helped you. Oh, I hope we always learn a lot. I mean, your your story. Well, I love the, the story you started out with. These guys, they're heroes. I'm, I'm nothing compared to that. Oh, come on! You got uh, a bronze star. Uh, you went running into the field of fire to pull people out of harm's way. Uh, oh, it's just yeah, I'm a humble guy, right? <laughs> well, you deserve a lot of thanks for that. And uh, I appreciate you spending some time with me. That's quite right. All right. Thank you, Peter. Peter's wife, Bertha, passed away three years ago. They were married for 67 years. Last fall, on the Park Ridge block where the Brewsters family has lived for decades, Adoring neighbors turned out for a birthday salute to Peter. Everybody, I fooled everybody. It was to be 97. I thought I'd never make it. And I gotta go for 100. Why not?
We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information, please visit honorflightchicago.org.